Here we go. It's Monday night, and once again, time for Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, unfortunately, not in the studio with us. We're also not live doing this show earlier in the day. Ira, we always have good reasons for that. Where are you? What's going on? Well, I'm at the, while you're listening to the show, I'm going to be at the U.S. Open all day. It's the first day of the U.S. Open. I've been here. This might be my 15th year. I haven't gone back and looked, but it's a huge event. I mean, it just seems to be getting bigger every single year. People said, okay, well, when Nadal and Federer retired, no one's going to care about tennis. But if you look at ticket prices, if you look how many are coming to this, it is a huge event, and it is taking over New York. It's pretty cool, and it's great to be here, and I'm so excited to be at the Open. I think it is a huge event, too, and people may not realize, but you know, like you said, you go to this every year and you see some pretty big time celebrities here rooting on the tennis players. It is everybody. I mean, look, I've sat there. How many times Tiger Woods has been there? You can't Michael Jordan. It's at the top of the top of the sports world comes to watch this. Um, it's a great, the, the atmosphere is amazing because you have the Arthur Ashe Tennis Stadium, which is the main stadium that you see on TV for the big matches. And they have the, the suites and the lounges. It's designed for VIP, VIP. I'm normally sitting above the suites in that section above the suites. And then there's a third level, which I don't like to sit in, but there's a section above the suites I'd like to sit in. But then there's the Louis Armstrong Stadium, the grandstand, all these other the first the first week I will probably only gonna be in Ash, I think, on Friday to go. I'm gonna be outside because you're saying why you be outside because well I don't need to see Djokovic win six one, six one, six one. I'm gonna <laughs> see I'm gonna see other great matches. And the thing is there's hundred and twenty eight players on the men's side, hundred and twenty women's on the women's side, and unless you're you know missing and I'll see Djokovic and the Alcaraz next week when they're playing in the semifinal quarterfinals and semis and finals. But for those first round matches, I like to go outside and there are some great matches, and the courts are smaller. It's like going to, like, Delray and, you know, the small, the second tournament in Miami. Small little courts with great players playing, and it's, you know, so I love being so close to the action and watching the players play outside. Good friend of the show, Jeff Perlman, is going to join us at 735. Jeff is always a fantastic interview, and we can't wait to catch up with him. Yeah, I cannot wait to have Jeff back on the show. Uh, we had him on, it's a third time, we had him talking about Winning Time last year, which is his book. He wrote the book Showtime on the Magic Johnson, Creole Joel, Jabbar Lakers, and it was a big hit on HBO. And then we had him on for Bo Jackson. He wrote a book on Bo Jackson, great book on Bo Jackson. Never having him back again, he was in the second season of Winning Time. I love the show. There's only seven episodes, but I know people like, I, I know people like me sort of sometimes wait till you get, you know, if there's seven, just watch all seven in, in seven hours, but it's a great show. I love it. It's an action. It's not a documentary. It's not like um, The Last Dance. They actually have actors portray the different characters. And the coolest thing is, like, Norm Nixon's son is portraying Norm Nixon. So with all the passion that Norm Nixon has. So that's pretty so cool. I love how this John O'Reilly is the, uh, is the place, Jerry Buss. So there's a ton of their celebs. There's great actors. Everything about it I love. Big fan of the show. Yep, Jeff Perlman, 735 here on Ira on Sports. As we roll into the U.S. Open, uh, what do we need to discuss here as we get ready? Well, I think really the key is you're looking for, in the men's side of the draw, what it, 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 everyone is talking about, Alcaraz and Djokovic. I mean, they, they met in the French Open, and he won, and Djokovic won in the semifinals. They met in the, uh, the Wimbledon great epic finals that Alcaraz won in five sets. <laughs> it was like five hours of watching tennis. And then they just played in Cincinnati in, in what a match that many of my friends and I myself say they can't remember a better three-set match. And that's pretty amazing considering we've seen Djokovic. I mean, Nadal and Federer play these great three-set matches. So it, they are really slated. That if, it'd be a shock if next two Sundays from now we're not looking at a men's final at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which I've said from day one should be on Tuesday night or Wednesday night, not on Sunday in the middle of football season. So it's, 
said that. But let's like how the draws. Alcaraz has to play in his side of the quarters would be Sinner. And Sinner had a match point on Alcaraz last year. If the Italian, young Italian, only 20 years old, he's the sixth seed. So that could be an upset. Sinner has some difficult players on his side as he goes through. His Andy Murray, who's won the tournament, and Stan Rawaka, who's also won the tournament. So he might have some early tough matches before he plays Alcaraz. In the bottom half of that draw, being the players that would play meet and then play Alcaraz, and the winner of Alcaraz Center would be Medvedev, who's won it two years ago, dominant. Djokovic was going for the, the uh, Grand Slam. And Medvedev from Russia was tremendous. And the other Russian player, another Russian player who people do not talk about is Rublev, who's the number eight seed, who, you know, he never can seem to have beat Medvedev, but we'll see if he's, you know, he, again, he's on that bottom half of the draw on that top, that side. And then on uh, the other quarter would be Kasten. This is where Djokovic, I think, got an easy, an easier draw. And usually he's had a lot of bad breaks in this tournament. But um, Holger Room is another 19, 20 year old from Norway. And he's, you know, he's young. It's Djokovic, I saw him play a couple years ago. He was like 16 years old in the first round, but he plays Casper Rube. He's the fourth seed, and Rude is the fifth seed, who's in the finals. I think both players Djokovic can easily handle. And then on uh, Djokovic's side, of ask Djokovic to get his in his quarters would be Titsipas, who he's beat handily in the last couple of matches. Titsipas has been a little inconsistent. So I really like in terms of Djokovic, you know, getting through. And it, this looks like a Djokovic. Alcaraz final. Now, where are the Americans? The Americans are on the rude rune side. So look for TFU, TFO, who last year beat Nadal and who everyone's waiting for this breakthrough. He could maybe break through and maybe make it to the semifinals. And Tommy Paul is also on that, under that rude rune. And he could, he's the 14th seed. TFO's the 10th seed. Paul's the 14th seed. Perhaps get, get through. And then Taylor Fritz, who's the 9th seed. So is, have maybe, maybe has a chance to beat Tissipas and then play Djokovic in the uh, quarterfinals. So that's where I'm looking for TFO Paul and Fritz, these, um, yeah, these young Americans, to somehow make a run in the tournament. You know they're going to be featured at night, featured everything. These, uh, I will tell you something, and since I've been going to the Open, I cannot remember three Americans that you could literally say have a good chance to win this Open, which is TFO Paul and Fritz, how they're playing. Now, they're not the favorites, they're not the second favorites, but compa- compared to everyone else after Akaraz and Djokovic, those three have a good chance to get to the final. And also on the men's side, this is John Isner, who's been was ranked the number one men's player for 15 years. And he's, this will be his final tournament. He's 38 years old, but he's going to hang it up after this tournament. Let's talk about the women's side a little bit. You brought up American tennis players. Coco Goff's been on a little bit of a run here lately. Maybe we see uh, Coco hoist the trophy for the women's side. Huge. You know, this is going to be so exciting for Coco. She is in the, her quarterfinals against Swiatok, who's the number one seed. Coco's number six seed. And normally you would say, Boy, uh, Swiatek has, I think, one beat over Goff. Uh, never, never, Goff never beat Swiatek. And last in Cincinnati, Goff won, once won the match. And uh, you're starting to have a sense. She has Brad Gilbert as her coach. So she can get through. I think he's, she, I'm not concerned that Djokovic and Akaraz are going to lose in these early round matches. I, Goff can somehow, if her serve is not on, could get upset early. So, but she can get through the quarterfinals. She plays Swiatek, and then Ribakina and Sakri are the other quarterfinals. And Sloane Stevens, who won this tournament in 2017, she's in the Sakri section. So maybe Sloane can have another good run through the U.S. Open. Now, Jessica Pakula, 
who is the daughter of the owner of the Buffalo Bills. It's always exciting when the football season starts, the owner of the Bills' daughter. She's the number three seed in this tournament. She's never made it to the semifinals of a Grand Slam, so, and she's 28 years old, but she plays, and Garrett Garcia is the number seven seed, and Keyes is in that side of the draw, so Keyes would play Bagula, Madison Keyes, another good American, and on the bottom of that would be, the quarterfinal would be Jabor uh, from Turkey, who made the finals last year, and Sabalinka uh, from Belarus. So, it's, it, the, the, I think everyone looking for the women's side of the draw I was looking for. Can Keys make a run? Can Sloan Stevens make a run? But most importantly, is this the tournament that Coco Goff breaks through at 19 years old, wins her Grand Slam, and now becomes the next you know, super great player? Because if you look at who's out, the 2021 champion Emma Ricardo is not playing. She's injured. 2018-2020 champion Naomi Osaka, she's out for uh, pregnancy. And uh, Serena Williams retired. So those three big names for past champions aren't in this. So really, every night you're going to see Coco off playing at Ash. It's going to be a, a big event in terms of her playing. Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. You can follow along with Ira at Ira on Sports across social media. Get some great pictures from the U.S. Open. Plenty of other great content there as well at Ira on Sports. So Ira, we were on this show one week ago and looking at the you know the tour championship and saying. How could Scotty Scheffler lose this with this massive lead? We just thought it was like a foregone conclusion. And then Victor Hovland quietly put together a fantastic season. Every time you look, whether it's a major big tournament, he's sitting there in the top five ready to make a move, and he made his move this weekend. I'm going to compare Victor Hovland to Coco Goff because these are players that are young. These are players that were winning tournaments that just that were trying to get that next level, to go from top ten in the world to top one in the world. And I think they both made major changes. Goff brought in, Brad fired her coach, brought in uh, uh, Pereira, and then Brad Gilbert, mainly as her coach, just this summer, which has produced great results. But Victor Hovland hired Joe Mayo as a swing coach in January. Restarted his entire game. You know, He even said, when I chipped the ball, I was just hoping to come close. I was playing like any golfer you'd ever see when I was chipping a ball. Now I think I'm trying to get hold of the shot all the time. Just the thinking that goes through it. And, and it, has a, it did a pay dividend sort of at the beginning of the season, but throughout the season, just getting better and better. He wins the BMW championships with a 61 in the final round, now wins the tour championships, running away with a five-stroke lead over Shoffley, totally passing Scheffler, and uh, cementing himself as, it looks like right now, playing number one in the world. He's not number one in rankings, but clearly the best player in the world right now. Yeah, just, just a fantastic run, and it was one of those things... I feel like he's kind of come from the clouds a few times in some of these majors and bigger tournaments and just hasn't been able to seal the deal. This wasn't coming from the clouds. He kind of just ran away with this thing, which we haven't necessarily seen him do, but it's a good thing for him and his future. Yeah, I mean, and Scheffler finished, I mean, thinking that you start, remember, they started this tournament with a lead about four or five stro- strokes on, on most of the jumps. It was a two-stroke lead over Hoblin. He finished 11 under par, and Hoblin at 27. I mean, it's unbelievable that how Hoblin, you know, Scheffler had this tournament, you know, was this East Lake, we're going to talk about it in a second, was, was an easy, was an easy to, uh, uh, um, course. Uh, and Scheffler had a 73 and a 70 and a 71. only break 70 once the entire tournament. And Shoffley uh, finished second at 22. Had a chance sort of there on Sunday. I was, I was following it on Sunday. Had a chance, but really after Hoblin sunk like a 23-foot par, made that. And then Wyndham Clark, the U.S. Open champion, was 16 under. Rory was 14 under. But Hoblin just literally running away. You know, most of the field, he's a double-digit lead over uh, to win this tournament. It, a huge victory and sort of sets up for next year. Remember, he hasn't won a major. And you're looking at this and like, where does Victor Hovland come for next year? And, and it look at, a, a, you know, with this power, John Rahm, who 
Started the year off great. Everyone thought you might have. He finished 18th out of the 30-person uh, field at 7 under par. It's crazy how fast things can change because we were looking at Rom four months ago like nobody could beat this guy. <laughs> and then since then, he's really done nothing. It's weird. But speaking of weird, we were talking about this last week. Why does the, the Tour Championship end at Eastlake every year? I mean, I get it. If you're not a good player at Riviera Country Club, you, you know in your head I'm not going to win the Genesis. If you're not a good player at Augusta National, you know I'm not going to win the Masters. But for all these other tournaments to rotate, all the other majors and the tournaments leading up to the championship, they change golf courses. So if you have a bad eye for Eastlake, which a lot of golfers say, this course just isn't for me. If this course isn't for you, you're just saying I'm never going to win the tour championship. Why isn't this rotated, Ira? Yeah, I don't. I think this is crazy that it's there every year. It's not an iconic. Like, if you look at the iconic courses that are played, like the British Open moves around, the U.S. Open moves around, the PGA Championship moves around. So those tournaments move. Then you have the normal tournaments like the Genesis and Memorial. But, of course, those are just normal tournaments. The two tournaments that come to mind that stay in the same is the Players, which is in Jacksonville, which was created just for this tournament. It was sort of a – it's been just been – I think it's been elevated to somehow be the fifth major over time because it's such a beautiful – it's like 17th hole, the iconic tournament, all those things in the prize money sort of is elevated and everyone views this as one of the best courses in the United States or in the world. So clearly that should be it. And then of course there's masters and no one's comparing East Lake to the masters. So at Augusta, so that the question is, yes, that leads it is that you're moving around the playoffs was they, the playoffs, the other rounds, they move around, they move from Chicago to Boston to Memphis all around. Why in the world in, in, and also in Atlanta in late August to have a golf tournament. It doesn't, it, I understand that it might rotate, have it, put in the rotation, but there, I think there are other tournaments that certainly uh, could warrant getting this tour championships, which is this, the, the high, pays the highest amount of any golf tournament in the world. So why don't you move it around to some other tournaments? And that's the course. thing, too. Like, we're in South Florida. It's pretty darn hot here. It's been hotter in the, the, the southern states above us for this past couple of weeks. So what, how did Atlanta come into play here? I, I can see if you wanted to put it in Detroit or somewhere where, you know, you, you need to use this time of year. But the, the whole thing just bizarre to me, Ira. Hopefully, you know, there's big changes coming to the PGA and maybe we will get this move. But I, I just, like I said, I feel bad for the guys who are great golfers. I just don't play this course well. And I know I'm never going to win the Tour Championship because of it. Um, Ryder Cup on, around the corner. And I, I still feel like there's a lot of... Uh, I don't know what the word for it is. I guess it's a debate on who should be making this team, and a lot of people are divided on it. Well, it's going to be decided tomorrow. They're, I think they're making a decision. That the, the, the Ryder Cup is the end of September. The, that's where they play the European players, American versus Europe. It used to be Americans versus England. America won all the time. But since they made it Americans versus Europe, it's been tremendous. Americans haven't won it since 1993 at, at the Belfry in England. So it's been a long, long time where they've won in Europe. Uh, this year, of course, the, the ones who qualified, six qualified already, Scotty Scheffler, and then Wyndham Clark, who won the U.S. Open. But he's a rookie, never played this. Brian Harmon uh, is a rookie also, but it won the British Open. Patrick Cantlay, Max Homa would be a rookie, and Xander Shoffley. So those six, and, and like you look at those names, you're like, well, where's all the big names? And, and then the other picks, like Brooks Kepka, who doesn't even play on the PG Tour, but he's going to get in. He was seventh in points, how they captured these points, from just being, you know, winning the PGA Championship, second in the Masters, and he's been great in the Ryder Cup. Three previous Ryder Cups, he's been 6-5-1. and one. 
I cannot believe they would put him in. I don't care if he's going to live, they, whatever, they'll put him on. And Jordan Spieth, who's eighth in points, he has no wins this year, but seven top tens. In the Ryder Cup, he's eight, seven, and three. I think he's going to be in. And then the question is then for these next picks. Now, Cam Young is an interesting candidate. He is ninth in points. He was the rookie of the year last year. But he didn't have a great year this year. He's one of the longest drivers in the tour, but doesn't putt well. And then that's this type of Ryder Cup where they're putting, you know, where you're playing team golf and you're playing with a partner and you're, the putts are good and forth and everyone's standing around watching your putting it's not going to be like every single putt it seems like there's a good chance i keep thinking that even though he's ninth in points that they're going to pass him over and then you have uh, colin Morikawa, who's 10th in points who's won two majors five pj tour victories he's 301 in Ryder cup i gotta believe that colin mark with two majors is going to be put in so i like brooks spieth and morikawa and then keegan bradley is someone who's played like in 2012 the Ryder cup hasn't played recently he's 11th in points I think potentially he could get passed over. And I was reading all about this. I think this is the one who they're going to put in. This will be a little surprise for people is Sam Burns. And the reason is he is best friends with Scotty Scheffler. He's one of the best putters on the tour. He's 12th in points. And they would team him with Scheffler because Scheffler's putting has been inconsistent, to say the least. And Burns is the best putter on the tour. So if you put Scheffler and Burns together as a team, that would work. And then Ricky Fowler's 13th in points. Who, but really, it's been one of the last year is 125th in the world. This time last year, he's been super hot. He's won, you know, eight of the 10 tournaments, and he's been uh, top eight uh, in, in 25 starts. Um, he hasn't played well in the Ryder Cup, but I think Fowler would, I think they put him in. And then it's the final, whoever. <laughs> The final could go anywhere, and a lot of people think. The question is, Justin Thomas has played terrible this year. He is 15th in points, but he's 6-2-1 in the Ryder Cup, 10-3-2 in the President's Cup, and he has missed the cut in three majors. Would you put him in? Compared to someone like Lucas Glover, who has won two of the last three tournaments, Wyndham and St. Jude, and 22nd BMW, 18th in this tournament, but he's even playing a major all year. He was playing so poorly all year, <laughs> so then he just gets hot. So you put someone who's super hot, who has no experience, or someone like Justin Thomas, who has done great in this format, but has really played poorly. So I think those are the, the issues. I think the Justin Thomas pick will be when they, when they have the headline, that'll be the pick. Will Justin Thomas get in or get out? How much do you think favoritism goes into this? And, and I don't just mean with the captain's pick. I can see network pressure too. You know, the, the networks want to see Justin Thomas out there. They don't want to see Lucas Glover. So th- there's a lot of pressure here from external factors. Everyone loves Ricky Fowler. Everyone loves Cor- Colin Morikawa. I don't know if people love Keegan Bradley, you know, or, or, or um, Sam Burns, guys like this. I think it, it makes these picks harder to make. If, if you were just going off ability, I think it's a lot easier, but it's not really the case. Well, that's why they have the six captain picks and six other picks. I think that they put that in there for that purpose. Um, and I, and I think, yeah, I think the Justin Thomas pick is the real interesting, but you, but we know this all the time and pitch it and any sport you always have it. Do you want someone in the game who hasn't been playing that well, but they won in the clutch and he's not like he's old, that's <laughs> almost 30 years old. I mean, he's a younger player and he's just had a bad year and you bring him in this because you see the environment in Italy with the fans, with the screaming, with that, it, that's where I think they're a little nervous. That's why I think Cam Young will not be selected, even though he's seventh in points or ninth in points. I think they're going to say we have enough rookies on this team because Wyndham Clark and and and, and uh, Brian Harmon they won big events they won with a lot of pressure this year but this is a different form of atmosphere with the, as I said it just it, when you play the team golf and everyone's watching you and your other players are standing around watching you I think it pairs that's why you know they talk about live golf but live golf actually is helping prepare the players better for the Ryder Cup because they play the team golf concept you see at the end of the tournament all the teammates are watching around so 
this will be great. This will, I, I am very intrigued to see what happens with, uh, with especially the Justin Thomas pick. I think, I think Ricky's in. I think the Justin Thomas pick will be the big question mark. It, kind of an analogy to make in, in this scenario, and we'll talk about baseball more in a minute, but like with the networks and would the fans rather see Shohei Otani and the sub-500 Angels in the playoffs, or would they rather see the Texas Rangers, who are the best team in the, in the AL? So, like, there's no there's no firepower on, on Texas as far as moving the needle, but Shohei Otani is going to get everyone's attention. So it's interesting how that goes. We'll talk more baseball in a minute. This is Ira on Sports. You can follow Ira on social media at Ira on Sports. Jeff Perlman joins us at 735. How's the um the, the European team shaping up, Ira? Because I, I start looking at it on paper and like well, we haven't won in 30 years and this might not be the year either well this is you have Hovland who's the hottest golfer John Rahman Roy McIlroy so you have the big they have the big names at top Matthew Fitzpatrick the 2022 winner Tommy Fleetwood um, 50 years open 10th and British and then you have like Shane Lowry Terrell Hatch and Justin Rhodes and what the European does is they probably have like eight or nine players that ever you know people know they follow golf and then they throw the final three which we've never heard of players from out of nowhere that actually uh, that are really that you know they bring in that somehow are going to be good in the future so that's what the European does they have much more camaraderie they play well together as a team remember the, the Ryder Cup where they put uh, Phil and Tiger together and they were feuding they think how could that team lose Phil and Tiger they're both one two in the world but the European team has definitely the camaraderie and everything. Now, America's won the last year, but we'll see in terms of, uh, again, they have the big names at the top, the Rory, the Rom, the Hovland, which everybody knows. And, and, and that, the question is, what happens? Remember how they did rider performance? It's team play the first two days, and then they play, everybody plays the Sunday, 12 against 12. So that, that, that's where everybody's forced to play on Sunday. And we'll see. And, and usually the Europeans in Europe, these players play extremely well because uh, they're used to the European courses and playing this. So uh, I would say right now, if you were asking, ask me this weekend, I think Europe's favorite. I would put Europe as favorite to win the Ryder Cup this year, mainly because it's in Italy and that fact that uh, Hovland is playing so well. Let's move on here, Ira on Sports. So, Ira, I, I've long been debating changing the name of the show from Ira on Sports to Ira on Soccer because you're, no. all, <laughs> you're all in on Inter-Miami. You're all in on Lionel Messi. And th- there's a good reason to. This guy just never stops being a highlight reel. I Okay, now I'm going to say this. I think it's, it's Jordan-like because... He first of all, they're playing Red Bull team. I know a lot of people that are fortunate to go to this. It was in New York, and there's pictures of Messi and Djokovic at Casa Casa Cipriani and the restaurant, all this stuff. But Joke because Djokovic's in town, Messi's in town, and then Messi did was there was questions: Is he going to play or not play? And he ends up he sits on the bench to start the game. First half, 45 minutes, he doesn't play. And they're like, is he ever going to get in the game? And they're up one nothing. Uh, Inter-Miami's up one nothing. And then with 15 minutes to go after 15 minutes, then he starts warming up. Everybody's going crazy. And he goes in the game just for the final 30 minutes. So you're thinking, he's only going to play 30 minutes. Like, what's going to happen? I mean, it's, it's what, and he goes, and he has, first of all, he has a penalty kick shot. that was later. It was like a back, a free kick. It was a free kick, which uh, he was too close to actually get a good kick on that. But the goal he scored with about 10 minutes left was, uh, Absolutely. I mean, some people were saying it's one. Someone showed me all the like the best hundred messy goals. So I've seen better goals than that. But from my perspective, he gets it in the middle of the field. Uh, there are five Red Bull players that just collide around him: three in front, two in the back, one on the side. They're all surrounding him. He is attacked with that ball. He kicks the ball off the side of his foot. Just amazing to one of his teammates. He then, and that's what his skill level is. He. He, whenever he gets the ball, he gets totally surrounded. He kicks, and then he just 
just you know his first step is just faster than everyone breaks through that pack then they and his teammate passes in the ball and he just kicks the ball in easy for a goal and that was just tremendous the red bull fans were going crazy the red bull team was going crazy everyone because it wasn't just that it was just a great amazing play that you expect from messi and it's jordan like because whenever messi touches the ball you're like what could go next what could he do and when jordan had it i remember watching jordan it was like what is he going to do there he's going to make shots that i've never seen before he's going besides just being the greatest player of all time winning titles with winning championships the thing that people i think forget about michael jordan was that elect, he was just electrifying like that's what every time he touched it he could fly over everybody and make great shots and that's what messi has and i think that's where you know lebron's a great player and that's the one thing that it, when i was watching messi i think that's the one difference between lebron and and, and uh, jordan is that jordan did have that that factor that i think people who didn't see him play live because you're just watching highlights but when you're watching game live but when he touched it people were just like oh my god jordan has the ball what's gonna happen and he had the ball a lot but Messi, when he touches it, everything can happen, and that goal was tremendous. And Inter Miami won two nothing over Red Bull. Great comparison, and you're right. It was you know growing up as a kid in the '90s when when Jordan got the ball, you kind of held your breath, just waiting for greatness to happen. It's the same thing watching Leo Messi uh, day in and day out. So happy to have him in South Florida playing soccer. We brought up baseball earlier here on Ira on Sports, and it's. It's kind of just the saddest thing. I mean, after one of the greatest seasons, maybe the greatest season of all time, Shohei Otani uh, tears his UCL. Um, this is the typically the Tommy John, um, Tommy John tendon. And what they're saying now is he's going to play the season out. You know, you can p- play, you can hit with this. You just can't throw. So I don't know where we stand. We were talking off air. If I was his agent, I would want him out of there. But <laughs> he's still playing. I mean, he, he's tough as nails, and he's going to win the AL MVP regardless. Well, Bryce Harper had that same injury. He they they had the surgery, and then he came back and was DH. But of course, Bryce then he played, but he's not a pitcher. So it's this is the question mark with Otani now because everyone thought he had this amazing he had the, uh, leading the league in batting average against as a pitcher, leading the league in home runs. I mean, this is unheard of. I mean, it's a shame he can't finish the year out pitching, but he wants to finish the year out hitting, which I think is crazy. But it shows how much he likes to play and loves to play. But, you know, who's going to give him a ton of money knowing that, you know, could he ever even pitch again? This would be a second Tommy John surgery, all those factors that go into that. So um, I don't know. I just feel bad because I think it's one of the best things in baseball is Otani. It's just to watch him. is tremendous. And that's why I tried, you know, 1030 at night, the Angels are playing the A's. I'm turning the game on if he's pitching I just want to see it because I don't know how long it's going to last. Yeah, I'm wondering what you think the financial ramifications of this are going to be. I mean, he's still going to get a boatload of money, Ira, but he's basically not pitching next year. So you're losing one year. And like you said, he might not ever pitch again. Do you think he cost himself $100 million here by unfortunately, you know, tearing this again? We were talking about getting like five to six hundred million dollar contract. Now he's older. Now remember, Juan Soto turned down a four hundred million dollar contract. I don't know. I mean, from a hitting perspective alone, I think where the salaries are going, yeah, I think he's going to get at least five to six hundred million. With this cost him, it definitely does cost him something. You don't want to get an injury at this time. And then people are saying, why didn't you get shut down when it seemed like you weren't going to make the playoffs anyway? This, this would never happen. But he's a competitor and he wants to play, so I don't. That's what he does. But I feel, yeah, it cost him. But we'll see. I, people still will pitch. He is so dynamic. And uh, as a hitter, and also I think people think he can at least come back as a pitcher in a couple of years. So I do think it's it's going to cost him money, but I, he's not going to. He's still going to get at least a half a billion dollars. So for people who haven't been paying a ton of attention to baseball, like we have, 
There's some really good playoff races here. And we saw teams like Tampa Bay get off to a historic start, play middling baseball for three months. Now they've eight and two in their last 10. They've got the lock on the, uh, they've got the lead on the AL wildcard. And then in the National League, you've got scrappy teams like Arizona, Cincinnati, the Marlins, all fighting out for for some of these last spots. It's really going to be an interesting last uh, month of regular season baseball here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what, when when you look at a Baltimore team, but they're only two games up. Over Tampa and Tampa, you Tampa's doing with mirrors. They lose like three of their starting rotations. They lose their best player, Wander Franco, and they're still like, how in the world does Tampa stay in this? And they they definitely have it locked up. They're six up in the wild card race, and uh, and then you have it's exciting because you have the Rangers and the Astros. You have the, the the Western teams, which you really have this rivalry when the Astros move back to the American League, and then the Red Sox are at four and a half. Maybe get in, maybe not get in, and the Blue Jays, but. Again, a lot of people are saying, oh, there's no firepower in the American League. You don't have the Yankees. But you do have the Astros. Everybody knows that team. And I think if people excited to watch Baltimore play. But I do think it's, yeah, definitely Texas. And to me, isn't it funny that Texas, because, you know, Texas and, uh, and Houston might not win their division, but still, uh, they still might be my favorites to actually go to the World Series if Seattle ends up winning the division. But Seattle's a fun, exciting team with young players, too. So I think there's, again, there's still a lot of juice in the American League without Otani and without the Yankees. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody started the season thinking that the uh, AL West is going to be the most exciting division in baseball. But here we are, little Shohei Otani, the th- you know three of the best teams, and, and and it's been a great season. It's Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. About ten minutes from now, Jeff Perlman's going to join us. Great stuff coming up from him. What's going on in auto racing? Um, well, I think the key thing with this weekend, Verstappen wins again, ninth straight win, eleven out of thirteen. He won the Dutch Grand Prix. Uh, it was the craziest race. Verstappen had the pole like he normally does, and he starts the uh, he starts the race, and then it rains, and he doesn't pit fast enough in the rain. His teammate Sergio Perez pits, puts in rain tires. It's all you have to know the weather to play to be Formula One. Puts on rain tires. Verstappen is struggling not on the rain tires. He finally puts on the right tire, the rain tires, but he's still back, you know, in like way behind Perez. But then when it looks like it was going to get sunny again, he changes to the to the better tires that you can run, the normal tires, and because he changed the normal tires, he was able to take. That lead undercut Perez and then end up win the race. Um, it was exciting at the end because the rain hit again. There's 72 laps at 65th lap. It rained again, and so they stopped. And Alonzo of Aston Martin actually was close. They don't. They didn't. They went to a rolling start, and he was like a second or two back with a couple laps to go. And I think it's the closest all year I can remember someone at the end of the race being behind Verstappen. So Verstappen finished uh, first, Alonzo second, uh, Pierre Gasly of Alpine upset was in third, and uh, uh, Sergio Perez, Verstappen's teammate, finished fourth. Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton, the Mercedes had terrible finish sixth. Landon Norris, McLaren didn't play. Uh, was awful at seven. And, and Russell, George Russell Mercedes, he was so funny. He lit on his radio, they had the radio call. He goes, I thought I was going to be on the podium or win this race. Why I am, why am I so far back? Like, well, who messed up? And like, you know, it's like, well, he's blaming his team. It's also partly you, you're driving the car. So, and Charles Leclerc of Ferrari also had a bad day. They were both, you know, did not finish the race. But for Stappen, there's only a, a nine races left. And it looks like he can actually uh, win, win it. If he wins, if he wins the next two races, the season will be over. It won't be over, but he would have clinched the title with seven races to go. And how about NASCAR? 
Well, Chris Bushler wins the final pre-playoff race. He's now won three races and three wins in five races. Chase Elliott, a former champion, is now out of the picture. Bubba Wallace, a fan favorite, is in. And uh, Elliott, though, has only himself to blame. He missed six races because he was at a snowboarding accident, and then one for crashing out Danny Hamlin. So now the next, now you're going to have ten uh, weeks of the playoffs. It's Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. About five minutes from now, we'll get to Jeff Perlman, but still plenty to go. As we got to talk a little football here, Ira, and I'm not a big preseason guy. Don't put much stock into it. A lot of people do, but if you are going to watch it, what you have to be watching for right now is rookie quarterbacks and who's going to start the season. You know, under center, who's even going to make it in this league? Where you stand right now? Um, well, it looks look, it's shocking. Rookie quarterbacks: Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud, and it was just announced, and Anthony Richardson drafted one, two, and four, and they're all going to start. Now, remember, Patrick Mahomes. Didn't start his whole first year. The best quarterback in the league, some say, is going to challenge Tom Brady for best of all time. Just a few years ago, sat an entire year. Now, look what happens. These three quarterbacks, Bryce Young of Carolina, C.J. Stroud of the Texans, Anthony Richardson of the Colts, are all going to be starting. And I think that's what, I mean, it'll be exciting. I mean, that's even though these teams are bad, you're going to be one still watching to see if, how, what kind of players they're going to be. And then you look at some of the other rookie quarterbacks. Like Stetson Bennett had a very good preseason for the Rams. You think Matthew Stafford could get injured, Spadick could step in, and Aiden O'Connell for the Raiders. We talked about last week, fourth-round pick out of Purdue. Maybe he could get a chance to start if Jimmy Garoppolo, which normally would get, gets hurt. And, and uh, so I think that's where it is. But I, I think the surprise is that they that Richardson, Stroud, and Young are all named starters. And uh, Will Levis is still backing up Tannehill. Uh, he has an injury in the preseason, played one game. But uh, the fact is Young, Stroud, and Richardson, we'll see what happens. See, see uh, two years from now, if they're going to be the Zach Wilson and be behind somebody, or will they be the superstar quarterback for their team? So the AFC East, Ira, has, has been an arms race, as we've labeled it. They're just getting any big-time talent they can to try to overcome this very difficult division. Out of nowhere... Jonathan Taylor is, you know, potentially on the trading block. And this was, you know, he had some issues with the Colts front office with Jimmy Irsay. Now he's free to seek a trade. And everyone in South Florida is saying, Dolphins, you got to bring Jonathan Taylor in. It's not like the Dolphins need him. They have Rasheem Mozart. They have Devin Chain. They have Jeff Wilson. They have running backs. But they have, like, number two running backs. They don't have this... Taylor, who is so is this great, great running back. And the question is, they've made an offer for him. The rumor is they have made an offer. Now, whether it's like a third or fourth round, how they got Jalen Ramsey. Taylor, if you remember, two years ago, 1,800 yards, 18 touchdowns, best running back in the league. Uh, last year, injuries, 861 yards. We'll see what happens in terms of if he's going to be traded. I don't think the Dolphins are going to trade a number one for him, but if they can get for a third or fourth, they've shown in the past, they're going to make, you said, it's an arm race. The Jets get Dalvin Cook. The, the Dolphins will go after Taylor, but uh, you know they are already fine with their running backs. But I think if they feel they can get Taylor for the third or fourth round pick, they're going to make that trade. Whether the Colts want to make that get any picks right now, because I think the Colts are terrible. Like they're going to start Richardson, so now I'm thinking, why keep Taylor? To at least get a pick for him. Yeah, it would, it would make total sense. And it, like you said, they've got running backs, but I don't know if any of them are great. And when you've got a, a quote offensive guru in Mike McDaniel, you think. If we can get this guy another weapon, think about what it could do to put us over the top. I'm excited for it. I have no allegiance to this division. I just want to see them all be fantastic and high-flying. So hopefully we get uh, JT here to um, to South Florida. So ask any Jet fan, Ira. The Jets are going to the Super Bowl and they're winning it behind the back of Aaron Rodgers. I don't know if I buy it. What about you? I don't, I, I, they still have a chance. I'm going to say they have a chance. The fact that he played a series, the, plays, the fact that he was healthy, uh, didn't get hurt, looked okay. Um, their offensive line, the question for the Jets, I, I, again, the Jets fans, so there's a offensive line's fine. You haven't seen the real line. They haven't played. 
but that seems to be the issue. The defense will be great. How good will the offense be? Where Rodgers get sacked? I mean, remember when they had drafted, I remember years ago, Neil Donald. You know, Neil Donald was the Steeler quarterback from the Super Bowl that they took. First game of the season, he tears his Achilles tendon. <laughs> so you don't, you want to keep Aaron Rodgers upright. You want to keep him playing. And uh, no Aaron Rodgers, uh, Neil Donald, no Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> but we'll see. I, I do like the enthusiasm for the Jets right now. It cannot, I don't think it can be any higher than it is right now. So if we don't change the name from Ira on sports to Ira on soccer, we might have to change it to Ira on Steelers Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> you're all in on this Steelers team, Ira, and this might be the, the, the AFC North might be the best division of football. It's not going to be easy. How are you guys looking right now? The quarterback, they destroyed the Falcons 24 nothing. Now the Steelers, well, I like what Tomlin's been doing. This, the, Tomlin has been having the starters for the first quarter at least in every preseason game. Kenny Pickett, 4 for 4, 60, 86 yards. He looks fantastic. Um, they look like they have so many weapons. George Pickens, the wide receiver, is going to be a monster this year. Plus, DeAndre Johnson, firing with the tight end. They're using all their running backs. I, I mean, Matt Cannon, everyone's questioning the offense coordinator, his decision-making. But Pickett looks like this is when a quarterback makes that progression, that first and second year. Suddenly the game slows down. You've been and had the whole offseason. You know, Pickett's been living at the Steeler facility the entire offensive besides getting married this offseason. But he's been improving. And if he can make that step with the defense they have, I'm starting to become, I was not when the season started like a few months ago, but watching Pickett in the preseason, if he can carry this over, wow, I think the Steelers, yes, they're a playoff team. Any other uh, predictions or outlooks for the season as we're just a little over a week away from starting? Look, in the AFC, there's 16 teams, 17, seven make the playoffs. I think two teams have no chance at all, Houston and Indy. So it's, you know, 14 teams for seven spots. In the East, I love, you know, Bills, Jets, Dolphins. I don't think the Pats are going to make it. Bengals, Steelers, Bravens. Don't think the Browns will make it. Jacksonville will get that division over Tennessee, Houston, and Indy. KC, Chargers uh, will be in, and Broncos and Raiders. But that is, I go five, that's five spots for wild cards for three. You know, there's only three spots. And I think the Jets and Dolphins and Steelers over the Chargers and Ravens. I know this is tough. Like Ravens and Chargers, if they play the NFC, are in 100%. But in the AFC, I think the Jets, Dolphins, and Steelers get in, the Chargers, Ravens out. And then the NFC, it's the other way around. The sure things are the Eagles, Cowboys, Vikings, and San Francisco. Those are only, you know, those four teams I think are, are sure. But after, after that, I think the other three spots are wide open. Um, it's tough to think who's going to, you know, who, who are going to get in over those, over those picks. I mean, it's just, it's just maybe in the one division, New Orleans, Atlanta, Carolina, and Tampa, you can make a case for either one. Any of those teams winning that division, I think. It's, it's such a crazy division. Tampa dominated because of Brady in the past, and Drew Brees also was in that division. But short of that, I don't know. Rams, Seattle. But I would say my wild cards would be like Lions and Seattle. I would say New Orleans would win the division. And then uh, that of the South, NFC South, and Lions, Seattle would make the playoffs. But I'm not there. They could make the playoffs with a sub-500 record. But, I, again, if the Chargers and Ravens were in that NFC, they'd be in. You have definitely much better teams than AFC than the NFC. I largely agree with you, except for the AFC South. That's still the Titans division. I, I'm yeah, I, and, and over Jackson. Yeah, I, I, I would take the Titans. Um, I just, I know they had some issues last year. They closed out the season horrendously, but I don't think Jacksonville is some juggernaut that that a lot of people are making them out to be. I'll still take the Titans to win this division, and we're just gonna have to see what happens. But I, you know, if, if I got to trust Mike Vrabel and Ryan Tannehill in a contract year, I'm gonna go ahead and stick with that. This is Iron Sports True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So we said NFL right around the corner. But the NCAA season has officially started. Tell us about what happened and what we can expect going forward. Well, USC was I played San Jose State. 
USC won 56-28, Heisman Trophy, defending Heisman Trophy champion, Caleb Williams, again, great, 278, four touchdowns. Zachariah Branch, the number seven recruit in the country, had 232 yards on nine touches, including an electrifying 96-yard kickoff return. So USC's offense looks fine. I mean, there was a play where, where Williams, like, fumbled the ball, kicked it around, picked it up, saw wide receiver, just threw it, like, 80 yards down the field. So he's fine. But the defense with USC, that's a question mark last year. It's a question mark this year. They thought they improved, and San Jose was able to move the ball and score 28 points. But it's, again, and USC's not going to win the national championship unless they get their defense up. The other team that played, Notre Dame beat Navy 42-3. Um, Sam Hartman for Notre Dame is uh, – uh, he's from – played at Wake Forest last year. And he is uh, – Sam, he was – he is very, very good. This is like his sixth year of playing college football. He set every record in the ACC. And Notre Dame has an interesting schedule. They play Tennessee State next week, uh, Eddie George we had on our show, but they play Ohio State at home, USC at home, and at Clemson. They win two of those three games, they'll be in the playoffs. Now, people aren't giving them a chance to win two of those three of those games, but Sam Harmon looks fantastic. This is not the, uh, Notre Dame the last few years where they seem like never passed the ball, but very impressed. I know Navy's not a big you know, competitor for them, but they look great in that game. And then, So I was really impressed with, with USC's offense and Notre Dame in general. Let's go to Jeff Perlman. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, and we're welcome to bring in Jeff Perlman, author of the book Showtime and many, many other books. We just had him on a few months ago about his Bo Jackson's book, and he's actually working on a book on Tubac Shakur, so can't wait for that to come out. But Jeff, we brought you on today to talk about winning time. First three episodes are out on HBO, and thanks for coming in. And we had you, I think, a year ago talking about the first season, and this is now the second season. This is indeed the second season, and thank you for... Uh... Hopefully I'll come back for the 12th season. <laughs> well, I watched all three episodes last night, and I'll tell you what, this is, I, I criticize sports movies and everything. This is the best I've ever seen it. It's the best acting, the casting, the story, of course, is perfect. Direction, production, everything about it. It is tremendous. I just, it's, I had such high expectations going to season two, and it's exceeded those expectations. I feel like you, uh, you're raving about the show, but you have not seen the basketball scenes clearly in the Michael J. Fox 1984 classic Teen Wolf, <laughs> in which in which he doesn't know how to dribble or shoot, but he's very real in not being good at basketball. So I hope by comparison we hold up to Teen Wolf. I the, appreciate it. <laughs> well, getting back to an old movie, the, um, the best scene that you've had in the first three episodes was that my favorite scene in almost any movies is in Empire Strikes Back when uh, Lando Carlisian was in the Cloud City and taking Han Solo and Princess Leia and saying, I think I made a deal with the Empire that will keep the Empire out of uh, you know our business for the time being. And then they walk in the room and they're sitting as Darth Vader. And it's like in the movie last night, to the show last night, Norm Nixon's walking in, Jerry Buss is like, I think I've got this all settled. Thanks for coming to the house. And Norm is so excited. He walks in the house and there at this big buffet feast table is Magic Johnson standing right there. So I think that was. Yeah, so that is a great, that is a great scene. I actually thought you were going to say my two favorite scenes from last night. Um, episode three. Number one is um, Larry Bird playing in jeans at Indiana State his first time and lighting everybody up. And then uh, Jim Jones. Uh, being traded to Washington and exploding in the Lakers front office, I thought were both really amazing, amazing and true to life scenes. 
Uh, uh, that is just a tremendous. The, the Larry Bird casting is tremendous. And the idea that he walked in, and that story is true, that he was he not only with jeans, with, with boots. He had boots and yep. jeans on. He's playing in the players are playing. And he scored like what, 50 points in, in just a practice game. Uh, yeah. Talk about a little what the Lakers did in terms of, we ended season one, the Lakers had won the ch- championship, they're the champions, but how Boston then responded to the fact that the Lakers are champions. Boston didn't even make the finals that year. And what uh, Red Auerbach you sort of got a hint in the in the in the first episode what the Boston had done uh, to match the Lakers winning the title. Well, I mean, the greatest to me, one of the greatest off seasons in basketball history would be Red Auerbach trading with Golden State the rights to the pick that wound up being Joe Barry Carroll, who certainly was an OK NBA player, and he got their you know backup center Robert Parrish, and they drafted Kevin McHale with the pick, and you know Robert Pe- Parrish McHale Bird became the you know centerpiece of the Celtics dynasty in a lot of ways. So it was kind of brilliant. And, uh, you know, the Lakers didn't match that. The Lakers won the championship, kind of sat back on their heels a little bit. And then Boston came along and just o- overtook the league that year, 84. And then we talk about in the taining, the first step scene, the first episode, right? I guess the first se- episode talks about the 80s training camp and title-itis. Uh, suddenly now Magic has won a, a championship in college for Michigan State in 79. Now he wins the world championship as the MVP in 80. And now you have the dynamic of Magic and Kareem battling in terms of who's the star really on this team. And now you're, you know, because like, remember when Kobe and Shaq, and you wrote the book about those Lakers also, Kobe had not won a, an NCAA. NCAA title. He had not won as his first year an, an NBA title, but that what Magic had, and so I think he was looking more for Kareem to defer to him, and that was sort of the battle between those two. Yeah, and I wouldn't say Kareem saw it as a battle. Um, I think Magic saw it as you know it was his team, and he was a young player, and you know young buck, and this is my team, and Kareem was like kind of indifferently bemused by it all. Um, you know, it's funny. In my household, my wife, Catherine Perlman, she's a very big Kareem Abdul-Jabbar fan and has been for years. And she maintains that Kareem is the greatest player ever played. And what bothers her a little bit is just she thinks Magic Johnson's audacity. And I'm always like, listen, girl, the truth of the matter is Magic came along and he transformed the league. And she's always arguing for Kareem and I'm always arguing for Magic. <laughs> so it's kind of a household phenomenon, actually. So amidst that dynamic of Kareem, this is so, so great. I mean, it's almost like it's fiction, but it's actually real. And your book, Showtime, people should read Showtime along with watching the, the series. But is the Norm Nixon dynamic. Norm Nixon had been there for two years, was a star point guard, and Magic comes in. And now this sort of, this becoming the training camp of 80, it seems like they now are starting to have some friction between Magic and Norm Nixon about who's going to have the ball and those type of things. Yeah, well, Norm Nixon was one of the best point guards in the NBA when Magic was drafted. And they bring in a point guard. And you're always going to feel threatened. I mean, that's sports. When they bring someone along to take your place or challenge your job or whatever. And Nixon was a pretty cocky guy. I just want to note, by the way, the actor who plays Norm Nixon is Devon Nixon, Norm Norm Nixon's actual son, which is a really nice touch. And he's he's an exceptional actor. Um, But, yeah, I mean, Norm didn't like it. He didn't like Magic coming along. You don't know what wants to be replaced in the NBA. And you're the centerpiece in your L.A. And you're... His nickname was Savoir Faire, and he was super snazzy and cool and L.A. chic and dating Debbie Allen. And all of a sudden, this guy comes along, and he's getting the endorsements, and he's a good-looking guy, and the smile, and 7-Up and Buick. So there definitely was a lot of conflict. 
And then the other uh, protagonist or antagonist, or however you want to say, is Paul Westhead, the coach. And I liked you the quote. I don't know if it was from the book or from the movie. I, I wrote my notes down. It said, Jamal Wilkes said, when Paul became a genius, that's when the trouble started. And we've had Paul on our show, so he's been great on the show. But it seemed like he took mo- much more. He replaced Jack McKinney in the in the 79, 80, se- or 80 season. And then now he is the head coach and he has total control, it seems like, of everything. And now he's implementing his system, not Jack McKinney systems. So here's the thing I will say. It's funny because like with the show, you hear a lot of criticism from like Jerry West. Oh, Jerry West was mad or Magic was upset. And the one guy who I think we do maybe a slight disservice might be too strong, but is Paul Westhead. Paul Westhead was a great coach. Paul Westhead went on to have a lot of success at Loyola Marymount, coached women's basketball really well at Oregon. My guy was a great coach. But when he took over and he won a championship, he came back the next year sort of determined to switch things up and put his own imprint on. And as a result of that, he really screwed up the team in a lot of ways. So he, it wasn't wise. But if, if anyone comes away from the show and thinks, wow, Paul Weston was an idiot, he really wasn't. He was actually a very smart basketball coach. And then the season started out pretty good. I mean, the showtime, everything was working great. And then Magic's injury, and it's similar. I mean, Magic, uh, Michael Jordan had an injury in his second year also in terms of with the, with the knee injury. that, And he was out like almost three months. And that's sort of the team went into different dynamics with Magic out of the lineup for the period of time. And they showed Magic just sitting at his house. And you said in the book he watched like every single TV. <laughs> he was like 12 hours a day of watching television. He was by himself. And all those dynamics about Magic being out in the whole middle part of the season. Well, you also have to remember back then, it wasn't like now, where they immediately send you a throw into rehab and they have you work with this guy and that guy. It was the pretty dark ages of sports medicine. So it was basically go home, get some rest, ice your knee, watch a lot of TV, whatever you do. <laughs> and that's basically what it was for Magic. His rehab was staying home, staying off the knee, resting. Now he'd be, nowadays, he'd be in the team facility every day. He'd be in the cryo freeze chamber. He'd be doing this, he'd be doing that. It is a different era. So... He was home. The Lakers played well without him. Then he has to come back, and it's kind of a, an awkward readjustment. Yeah, and then you mentioned in the book, and this is when I think some of the friction between there's so many different characters in this, the whole Pat Riley, Paul Westhead friction, where Pat Riley was working with Magic on the side, trying to get him's confidence back, and Westhead didn't know about some of these training sessions, even though I find it surprised that he wouldn't know those. But it was that aspect of Pat Riley and Paul Westhead, sort of how are we going to integrate Magic back into the lineup after we had done fairly well without him out of the lineup? Um, yeah. Also, I will say there is some creative license. Like, I agree with you. I, Riley certainly wasn't going under. Like, he wasn't undermining his coach. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, what, what happened is Riley was one of them. Like, Riley was a blue-collar, gritty, former Laker, Schenectady, New York kid, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and Westhead was a college, former college coach, kind of part of the system, blah, 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 blah. So it was just like a weird marriage of coaches. And the book mentions, well, the movie talks about the David Thompson trade. You didn't really mention about the potentially trading Norm Nixon. Now, there was trade rumors for Norm Nixon all the time. People kept thinking they were going to trade him. I didn't know. I think in the book you highlighted that. But it de- definitely caused the dynamic of the team is that Norm Nixon could be traded and, and the people, Jerry West, once, once Norm traded for David Thompson and that aspect. Uh, yeah. I mean, actually, the David Thompson trade was legit. And um I think it would have been a, a very bad trade for the Lakers. Years later, it's funny. Years later, they almost traded James Worthy for Mark Aguirre. <laughs> and I think that would have been a disaster. Even though, again, Aguirre and David Thompson are both big scoring like superstars. 
they weren't right for the system. So I actually think Westhead was correct in his assessment that we don't want to trade Norm Nixon. Um, and later, when they traded Norm Nixon to the Clippers, they wound up getting Byron Scott in the deal, the draft rights of Byron Scott. So ultimately, not making the trade uh, paid off. And then back in the day, in those days, they had three first the three round series, which is pretty exciting. When we watch these playoffs and they go on for two and a half months, I think a lot of people are saying, "Can we just go back to the three, you know, the three round, the three game series?" Uh, but they, Houston was forty and forty two, did not have a good year, and they were upset. The Lakers were upset in the first game, and the second game they won. But in the third game is one of the most famous games of all time, that where Magic had the ball at the end of the game and shot an air ball, and the team lost, and they had a huge upset to the Lakers. I just think the basketball in this show is really good, I got to say. Like, it got me thinking about how they depicted that game. And just everything about the shooting of the show is so good. And they really nailed that. And that was, a, uh, that was an insane loss. Like, Houston was terrible. The coach was Dale Harris. They had Moses Malone and a bunch of spare parts. The Lakers had no business losing to them. But the readjustment of Magic back, uh, the awkwardness, the tuning out of Westhead, everything just combined and... They kind of, you know, crap the bed. <laughs> and then you know, I actually watched the video of it. They, I went on YouTube and watched it, and they really did get it right, how everyone was open, and Magic just took this bad shot. And he was also yeah. two for 14 for the game. And, the, and then the, the Celtics went on to win the championship. And then mm-hmm. before we start for the next season, and they talk about, you've spent, the movie talks about the family dynamics, the whole Jeannie Buss, uh, Jimmy and Johnny, her brothers, and how they were all, you know, Jeannie's doing all the work and everything, and Jimmy and Johnny are the playboys and not really focused. And, and they take it to the extreme, they're Monopoly games. But I do enjoy watching that, you know, aspect of the game and seeing, you know, you would almost think that Jeannie is behind this entire thing because it makes her look like she's the brains behind everything. Well, Jeannie was the smart child of Jerry Buss. His sons are idiots. Like, they've always been known as idiots. In California out here, they can't walk around with their names. I mean, people just really do not respect them. And Jeannie was always business savvy. Jeannie was always a step ahead. She knew what she was doing. She ran the L.A. Strings, a women's tennis team, very well. So I think it it does depict well sort of the subtle rise of Jeannie and the idiocy of her brothers. And then we start the third year. His third year, actually, the the season after they lost the, the did make the lost in the first round. And again, Westhead is now asserting, you know, I said asserting control, um, made decisions on signing Mitch Kupchak because he wanted Kupchak to be to be there. You actually in the book talked about how every other you interviewed all these executives and they all said it was the stupidest thing they ever heard about. And they drafted Mike McGee, all these different mistakes. But Westhead was then decided, I'm going to put my system in place. I'm going to do it my way. And then the team rebelled against that. And there was that friction between Westhead and uh, the rest of the team on the system, which is more of a it's hard to say it's a more fast pace but it was more running to a spot and shooting rather than the free-flowing of Nixon and Magic just running there and making decisions and passing. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes in the show is when Paul Westhead says, I call it the system. And Jim Stones, played by uh, the great Newton Mayenge, says, the system? That's your name? That ain't sexy. <laughs> and, uh, and he goes, thanks, Jim. Um, yeah, it was a bad idea. It was a very high school... I don't know, it was like Paul Westhead getting ahead of himself and thinking here's this brilliant idea and it's really going to work because it's brilliant. So it'll work. And it was terrible. None of the players liked it. He, uh, he just lost a lot of respect because they had won a title playing a certain style and he went away from it. And all the players knew it was just a dumb idea. So, uh, that really was the beginning of the end when he really, the beginning of the end is when he instituted the system. Yeah. And then, 
we're not we're jumping. I'm not going to go too far into because I want people to watch the show. You know, I'm, it's mm-hmm. one of those things where even though it's truth, but and I watched all this, but it's so long ago that you really don't know all the details of everything. So it is fun. But you did. I'll touch in because I guess this will be the next. I saw the the previews for the next episode for Sunday is the whole demise of Westhead and when Magic started challenging Westhead in that third year and sort of pushing it, and then it came to all of a head where Magic wasn't listening to him and going to the games and and literally forcing Westhead to get fired. Correct, and I don't want to give away too much in the show, but I can tell you, in episode six, a certain very handsome, very smart, very dashing sports writer gets a cameo as a reporter at a press conference where Paul Westhead is no longer the coach. So I don't want to give away too much, but that smart, dashing, handsome, cool, badass might be on the phone with you right now. <laughs> it took how many episodes for you to get into this? I mean, it's your brainchild. I, I was thinking you maybe you were hit like you were an extra in like the third or fourth episode would have been good. But well, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me tell you, in episode one, I did have a couple of lines, but they got cut. But the problem is my scene, my scene stealing wife played Donna, the Chicago Bulls receptionist, and she actually got her laugh. You can hear her laugh. In season one, in the pilot, and I was supposed to be in that episode too. And all you see is my back. So um, this is my big acting debut, really, on a national stage. I think it's really going to thrust me. I wouldn't be surprised if I get an Emmy nod for best supporting, 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 supporting reporter at a press conference. <laughs> oh my gosh! And it, you know, what I was surprised when you read about this, and I guess when you read your book and everything, is that that magic got by everyone. I mean, it was like people yeah. realized that Westhead wasn't working. The players didn't like it. And and I loved how Magic was like, all the guys think this. And he was like, you know, but it's really him. But, but you know, Nixon hated Westhead. And, and the other players didn't like Westhead. But Magic got all the blame for, for getting Westhead fired when it was really the, the whole team really got him fired. Except for I mean, Kareem was the only one to call him after he was fired. Kareem was the only player to give him a call and, and see how he was doing. Yeah, I don't think he gets fired if Magic doesn't lead the charge, though. And also... They were in the middle of a five-game winning streak when they fired Paul Westhead, which has to be the only time in history before or since that a coach leading a team in a five-game winning streak gets fired. So, I mean, that magic really was, in a lot of ways, the first coach killer. It's become much more common in the common era, modern era, as players get more power. But really, he was the first guy who had enough swag to uh, get a coach fired. And it was kind of on him. The other guys didn't like him. But Magic was the one who stepped up and sort of commanded, if this guy doesn't go, I kind of want to leave. You know, but they mentioned that his relationship with Jerry Buss, but the other players had good relationships with him. I think you said Ron Carter said about Buss, he's the only owner in the history of sports that said, where are you guys, after the game, he comes to the locker room and he goes, where are you guys going and can I come along? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the other players did hang out with him at the different, the Playboy Mansions and all the other things. It wasn't just Magic, but Magic more than probably the other players. There weren't that many owners in the NBA before or since who have, you know, enjoyed dating 19-year-old women and bringing them back to his mansion and, you know, catering them with alcohol and booze and whatever and blah, blah, blah. It's not a, uh, in hindsight, it's a pretty dark mark on Jerry Buss. He's kind of a gross guy in a lot of ways. But if you're a 20-year-old Magic Johnson, you're like, this is my owner? Oh, this is the owner of the team? This is kind of cool. So it's just... It works for the times, I guess, in a weird way. (laughs) 
And then uh, we're not going to give anything away. I'm going to stop at this last question. But I love in your book the press conference, and I hope the the, the uh, series shows this, is that the day after Westhead's fired, and then Jerry Buss has a press conference, and they go, who's the coach? And he couldn't, I mean, maybe the his first time in the history of sports, he couldn't say who the coach was, that there was going to be an offensive captain and a defensive captain with Riley and Jerry West. That is literally the scene I'm in. And one of my lines is, who's the coach? So you just stole my line on I'm sorry. on your show, which is really hurtful because I really practiced that line about you know for three days. So uh, yeah, correct. The press conference is one of the best scenes. I, I'm going to go out and say not because I'm in it. The press conference is one of the best scenes in the history of sports television. It is so preposterously good. My wife is standing next to me, nodding. She agrees. It's one of the best scenes ever. The whole episode is so. Episode six, starring Jeff Perlman, an Emmy Award nominated uh, extra. Is one of the best episodes you'll ever see on TV. <laughs> well, and it's like Jerry West said, they ask him, Are you the coach? He goes, No. And they asked Riley if he's the coach. He goes, No. And that's like, mm-hmm. nobody, you don't, you have a team now that is, you know, one year away from winning the championship with all these superstars, and there's no coach, and nobody wants to be the coach, or nobody. And you look at Riley today and sort of how he runs the heat, and it's like, How could he be part of this entire like mess of like that was? But it was, it's the, from the book perspective, when you wrote it in the book, and it was just, it's a, it is surreal, really. Correct. I mean, it was a quaint day of the NBA when you threw up a backdrop and held a press conference and kind of just wing it and hope it works out and everyone's smoking cigarettes and all. At the end, we're going to have hoagies in the back. Like, it was just a different era. So, you know, nowadays you have a million publicists who would have stood in the way and said, make sure you hit your talking points. They didn't do that back then. And then it's sort of, it, then we're, you know, it really forged Pat Riley in terms of what we see Pat Riley. I'm going to go to the Heat games now and he's sitting there with Alonzo Mourning and Shaq comes over there and he's truly the godfather of all godfathers. But remember, you know, like when you do the flashbacks in The Godfather, The Godfather wasn't always, you know, he was Vito Corleone in the beginning in, the, in, in Godfather 2. And you see him, you know, making those, uh, you know, taking control of the team and running the team that, right, you know, meeting with Magic, saying we're going to go back to McKinney's offense, those type of things. Yeah. Um, first of all, I'm one of the seven remaining males under over the age of 50 in America to have never seen The Godfather. But I do know your reference, and you are correct. And uh, yeah, he was just a guy. He was a has-been former player looking for a place to go in life. And this opportunity came up, and he happened to be a naturally gifted basketball coach. So, and there's only... Am I wrong? I, I'm trying to. There's only going to be seven of these episodes. I mean, I've seen three. There's three are out right now. If you just go on and, and binge watch it within in a three hour period, but is there only going to be seven for the second season? Uh, correct. There's seven episodes for season two. Oh my god! There should be more. I don't want it to. I mean, suits. Bro, suits. Who are you had, talking to, man? I I want twenty episodes per season because <laughs> I get paid per episode and because I love the show. I I know there's 18 episodes. Every Suits has 18 episodes. People are trying to binge watch Suits. It's like a, a life work right now to watch Suits. But what's tremendous? And then b- before we leave, I just want to say is what um, what about your Tupac book that you're working on? I, I I follow you on Instagram and Twitter and everything, and and you are talking about that constantly. So I'm interested in that book. I mean, I'm all about Tupac, and my wife again, who's standing next to me, never wants to hear another Tupac story because I tell them to her all. I am. Uh, I just always wanted to write this book and I waited and waited and waited. And, you know, you get pigeonholed a little bit as a sports writer and your sports book sells. So we need another sports book. And I finally said, I really want to do a Tupac book. And Harper Collins was nice enough to give me the opportunity. And I'm about 400 interviews in and I'm losing my mind. 
And I can tell you, I have Thug Life tattooed across my stomach. <laughs> and right now, as we speak, I'm smoking a big ass blunt and drinking a brew. No, no. Is there any other besides the Tubac, which I'd probably make a movie? But is there any one of your other books that we could do this with? In terms of, I think the second Lakers here, the second book about the Lakers would be perfect with Shaq and Kobe. But have you? Well, been- HBO has the rights to it. HBO has the rights to the second book. So, um, but you know, this season, this episode this season has to keep going and the series has to keep going for that to really happen so uh we need viewers i implore your listeners and i'm being serious about this we need viewers like this show is on the fringe of either thriving or being not airing anymore like we need numbers and that's the problem with well with tv in general you have to get the word out there's a writer strike there's an actor strike it's very hard to get the, the, the buzz and this show has buzz but it, it needs more buzz do you think it it should have aired? Like, why did you choose to start it in August rather than like during basketball season or the end of basketball season? Was that a conscious decision to do it? Like, I, I was surprised by that. Well, that's a little above my, my pay grade, but I will tell you, I have found with books that it is actually a mistake. Like, when I started in, in writing books, they would always be like, all right, you're writing a book about the 86 Mets. We should have that come out during the World Series. And what you learn over time is that's actually the worst idea because the attention of the World Series gobbles up your book and your book ends up getting no attention. So I think if this book, if this show had come out during the NBA finals, I think the finals would have completely gobbled up um, any attention for it. I, I don't know what to say. My, my big, my big thing is it's really hard to promote a show during a dual strikes, writer strike, actor strike. And that's been a real challenge. Cause you don't have the actors, but look, we're on five radio stations here in South Florida. I'm saying is I'm I'm very critical. I did not like feel of TV of uh, sports books. I didn't like Field of Dreams. I thought it was uh, even Draft Day wasn't that great a movie. And Jerry Maguire, all these sort of movies. I'm not a big fan of these. But this, the acting, and again, when you mentioned about Norm Nixon's son playing Norm Nixon, when he plays it, it's like you. It's like AI. I mean, it's like you're bringing back Norm Nixon because it's the passion. Like he knows what his father went through, and he plays like that. And it's just such the I cannot. The casting is perfect. Magic Johnson and Kareem. I can't even say there's no weak cast member. Everyone is great. They play the parts well. The production is great. And John O'Reilly is just tremendous as Jerry yep. Buss. It's, it's, it truly is a work of art when you're watching it. And, and I just would suggest everybody to watch it so to, to boost your number so we can have more. Because if they stop watching, then you're right. We don't have any more of this. I mean, I, um, I love this show. And the thing I really love, like, this is going to sound kind of corny, but it's really true. Like, I, I'm 51 years old. I've had a nice career in writing. I don't need this show, you know, like it's, it's great. It's a cherry on top of my career, but I don't need it. But like so many of the actors in this show are young. Many of them are black actors who are getting a real shot in an industry that oftentimes does not give that shot. Or they'll have black actors always play the drug dealer or he'll play the homeless guy or, he'll play, you know, like typecasting in Hollywood is very real and very gross. And here's a show that is a celebratory show that has strong characters of all different ilks. And I just think it's a worthwhile show to watch. I really do. And I would say that if I had nothing to do with it, because watching it gives me great pleasure. All right, Jeff. Enjoy your day. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Awesome stuff with Jeff Perlman here on Iron Sports. Ira, what's your plan for this week? I'm sure there's a lot of tennis coming up. I have a lot of tennis coming up. I'm super excited. Remember, though, college football, Florida at Utah, Thursday night. Utah's a six-and-a-half-point favorite. That'll be exciting. West Virginia at Penn State. I'll be at that game on Saturday, Penn State on NBC, the 20-and-a-half-point favorite. North Carolina at South Carolina, 7.30 ABC Saturday night. 
awesome game uh, between those two teams. And then on uh, Sunday, you got well, you know, NFL football, but you have college football, number five LSU uh, playing FS Florida State at Camping World Stadium in Orlando. LSU's here by two and a half. Love LSU to win that, that game. I think LSU's going to have a big win this, in that game. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Jeff Perlman. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.